Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is the last day of Youth Takeover here at KQED. We've been working with high school students from across the Bay Area to produce shows about topics that they're passionate about. Today I'm joined in the studio by Finn Doz, a junior at Marin Academy. Hey Finn, what's this show about? It's about a movement of black, queer, and indigenous farmers who are stewarding the land in Northern California and nurturing their ancestral roots. It's about climate justice, rematriation, and permaculture. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about a movement of queer, black, and indigenous farmers who have purchased land and are choosing to manage it in remarkable ways. I'm joined this morning by Finn Doze, a junior at Marin Academy who produced this show. Welcome, Finn. Thanks. So talk to me about why you wanted to do this show. Yeah, so for the past two years, I've been involved in the climate justice space through a local organization, the Bay Area Youth Climate Summit. During that time, I've seen a troubling disparity between whose voices are amplified and whose are pushed to the corners of the movement. So queer, black, and indigenous communities are at the forefront of environmental issues um, and are the most affected. And I just wondered how how can communities contain the solutions possible while simultaneously being silenced? As we know, these communities have faced oppression for years and have formed resilience and different solutions. Um, So more importantly, I just wanted to move this conversation Mm -hmm. beyond climate justice to more about healing land and communities through different practices. Yeah, because I mean... All our first set of guests have all basically been able to purchase land, right, and are now able to steward that land in ways that you know wouldn't possible before. Um, let's bring in our first set of guests here. We've got Pandora Thomas, the Afro-Indigenous founder and land steward of the Earthseed Farm in uh, on Grayton Rancheria land in Sebastopol. Uh, Pandora also played a leading role in founding the Black Permaculture Network. Welcome to the show, Pandora. 
Good morning. Thank you for having me, Elect. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, so good to have you on. We wanted to get you on. I'm so happy we do it on the show. Um, we also have Nicola Alexandre, uh, co-founder and stewardship lead with the Shelterwood Collective in Sonoma County. Welcome. Thank you so much. Good morning, folks. Looking forward to this conversation all together. Yeah, us too. Uh, and we have Maya Harjo, a farmer at Heron Shadow, a farm for indigenous refuge and learning in Sonoma County, which is operated by the Cultural Conservancy, a native-led San Francisco organization. Welcome, Maya. How are you? Good morning. So, Finn, where, where should we start? Let's Maybe we should start with uh, Pandora. You can tell us a little bit about um, Earthseed Collective. Well, again, thank you. I want to honor Finn for all the work he's done to bring us together. I also want to honor my co-guest, Shelterwood and um, Heron Shadow. I'm honored to be in Sonoma County with this community. And Earthseed Farm, well, it could you could call it a collective at the moment. And I think what's most important for us is that it's not just a collective of humans. Uh, we also honor, as Robin Wall Kimmerer says, our more than human kin. Mm. So here at Earthseed Farm, our collective includes 4,000 trees, soil, air, water, insects, pollinators, Humphrey and Benny, our pigs, Pootsie, our cat, <laughs> Jackson, our dog, <laughs> and then all of the humans that make our farm work. And they all identify as African or indigenous ancestry. And we are really here observing how this land that has been stewarded for so long by many communities, predominantly First Nation communities, and we're really here to learn and create a safe haven for our communities to return to and relearn what has really been taken out of our education system, how to live with and on our earth. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how you were actually able to kind of acquire the land and in particularly in the Bay Area where things are just so expensive, so difficult to put together something like this. Well, that's another thing. It should not just be me on this call. I also want to honor um for years I've been uh doing what what we call where environmental education meets ecological design rooted in Afro-Indigenous wisdom. So working on um how can we do environmental education in ways that honors the legacy and continued work of black and brown communities. And so during COVID, I was a I was a fellow at an organization, Movement Strategy Center. I want to honor them too. And when George Floyd, bless his spirit, had to leave this earth in a disastrous way he did, I was a fellow and part of my project was what would it look like to create a space for us to heal? And then that happened. And then all these people's purses opened up. <laughs> and so literally a friend was like, hey, Pandora, I've got a lot of a certain type of folks that are really wanting to support, you know, Black-led stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, you know what? There's a Black-led project I've, and many, the Black Permaculture Network we've been percolating on. It's time for us to have mm. a place to go. And I've been teaching in Sonoma County for almost 20 years, permaculture and all these other things. So... I started a GoFundMe or some type of a thing. And in two weeks, I had $20,000. Hmm. And so talking with my team at Movement Strategy Center and folks at the Black Permaculture Network, it was like, you know what? This might be a moment. Again, sad that it has to be at the at the life of one of our brothers. Hmm. But is this a glimpse of moment when people's pockets might be opening hmm. up to repatriate resources? Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. And hmm. within six months, we were able to raise 
the three million dollars. Wow. And again, it's we and it was a community yeah. and a lot of people of color with resources came to it. And so March 21st, sorry, March 30th of 2021, almost a year after George Floyd left us, we were able to transition this farm to Earthseed. Pandora, thank you so much for sharing. Um, I just wanted to take this conversation over to Nico for a moment. Uh, Nico, could you share with us a little bit about Shelterwood and what your work there implies? Very happy to. Thanks, Finn, and thanks for taking the time to create this space and bringing these folks together in conversation. It's, it's much needed, so we really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so I am the co-founder and the stewardship lead of Shelterwood Collective. Shelterwood is a 900-acre Black, queer, and Indigenous-led collective of land caretakers. We're about two and a half hours north of the San Francisco Bay Area on unceded Kashaya and Southern Pomo Territory in a small little town that is also known as Casadero. And well, what we're doing there is creating a community of folks who are in deep relationship with the land and trying to model what it takes to really start healing our ecosystems and the people whose connections to land has been historically separated. So here again, we really try to honor and center Black and Indigenous folks in particular, and the magic of queerness as being a vehicle to really bring people back together and reweave ourselves back into the natural fabric of, of the rest of nature. We took a hard look at how our ecosystems are degraded, and we follow Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous teachings that really tell us that the only way that our ecosystems, particularly in Northern California, are ever going to be truly healthy is if they are returned to a rightful relationship with our, our human kin. So we take the responsibility and the honor of being the, the current caretakers of this space and attempting to really model processes of returning to rightful relationship with that place. That looks like bringing fire back to the landscape, good fire, small amounts of fire, the ecosystem co-evolved with fire. It looks like um, thinning out the forest in small ways to increase the habitat of our endangered species kin. It looks like healing waterways to welcome salmon back. And it also looks like creating space for folks who are traditionally divorced from the natural environment to be able to come back, to retreat, to learn, to be in community with one another and to connect with our more than, than human kin. We do that on the land itself. And we also do that through our arts and cultural program, which we use to do work beyond the forest edge and really start supporting a movement that uh, is meant to help all of, all of our folks, all of our human folks to really see themselves as being part of the natural world. I mean, 900 acres is a, that's a big, big space. And I was wondering, you know, earlier Pandora shared some of the more than human kin that live uh, uh, on Earthseed. Can you talk a little bit about uh, Shelterwood? What do you have up there? Yeah, we're, we're very, very blessed to be in deep and beautiful relationship with, uh, we have old growth redwood, we have oak woodlands, we have Douglas fir, uh, we have a couple of grasslands and meadows that we're the, the caretakers of. We also have northern spotted owl habitat, coho salmon habitat. We have beautiful salmon friends, salamander friends, uh, all the way down to the, the mosquitoes that are starting to emerge right now who we're learning how to live with in beautiful ways. <laughs> That's nice of you to include them. Uh, I, I, I want to leave them out, but I understand what you're saying. Um, Maya Harjo, uh, farmer with Heron Shadow, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the story of Heron Shadow and your relationship to it? Sure. Thank you so much. Um, and also, first, I just want to say I'm just so grateful to be in circle with all of you today. Um, thank you for having me. Um, and also thank you to Shelterwood and Earthseed for being like the best neighbors and kin <laughs> in the work that we do. Um, we're all located kind of close to each other. So we have a sweet little community up north. 
but I work for the Cultural Conservancy, which is a Native-led organization based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, we've been around since 1985, and we work with Indigenous communities locally and globally um, to really protect and restore Indigenous cultures, like our traditional knowledge and also our ancestral practices. And in particular, I'm the farm manager at Heron Shadow, which is a seven and a half acre space in the unceded territory of the Coast Miwok and Southern Pomo peoples of the Federated Indians of Great Rancheria. And um, that space we've only had for about a few years now, but we're working to cultivate it into a place of, of refuge and relearning um, where indigenous people can really arrive to a safe gathering and growing place and where they can reconnect to their land stewardship traditions and all of the cultural practices that support that. Um, and where as indigenous people, we can, we can really see a reflection of ourselves in the land. Thank you so much. This is the final day of Youth Takeover. And we've got Marin Academy Junior Findos here with a panel that he's put together about the movement, and you can hear their connections, it's really beautiful, of black, queer, and indigenous farmers who are stewarding land in Northern California. Our guests are Maya Harjo, a farmer at Heron Shadow, a farm for indigenous refuge and learning in Sonoma, uh, Sonoma operated by the Cultural Conservancy, which is a native-led um, organization. We're also joined by Nico Alexandri. Uh, co-founder and stewardship lead with Shelterwood Collective in Sonoma County, and Pandora Thomas, the Afro-Indigenous founder and land steward at the Earthseed Farm uh, in Sonoma as well. We would love to hear from you. I mean, what are your questions about this land stewardship movement? How could you restore, you know, relationships to to balance? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email for your comments and questions is forum at kqed.org. And you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more with this amazing panel and Marine Academy Junior Findos. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's the final day of Youth Takeover. Youth Takeover, of course, we're 
KQED works with high school students from across the Bay Area to put together shows that they're passionate about. And this morning, we've got Marin Academy Junior Finn Doze here with a panel that he's put together about the movement of black, queer, and indigenous farmers who are stewarding land in Northern California. Those guests, we're joined by Nicola Alexander, co-founder and stewardship lead with the Shelterwood Collective in Sonoma County. Pandora Thomas, Afro-Indigenous founder and land steward of the Earthseed Farm. Maya Harjo, a farmer at Heron Shadow, a farm for Indigenous refuge and learning in Sonoma, operated by the Cultural Conservancy, a Native-led organization. We'd love to get your calls and questions about this land stewardship movement and how you connect with the more-than-human world all around you. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or KQED Forum. Finn, we want to add uh, the last member of your panel to the discussion. That's uh, Miles Lennon, an environmental anthropologist and the Dean's Assistant Professor of Environment and Society and Anthropology at Brown University and a board secretary with the Shelterwood Collective. Welcome, Miles. Welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for joining us. Take it away, Finn. Yeah. Miles, uh, thank you so much for joining us again. And uh, my first question for you is, what do you think has gone wrong in the storyline of our relationship to land? Ooh, that's a that's a big question, and that's a really important question. Um, there are are lots of ways that I think that organizations like Shelterwood and Earthseed and Heron Shadow are really changing our narrative of what it is to be in relation with land, um, and lots of things that they're correcting. And but I would say um, the the most stark. Um, uh, uh, misunderstanding or misapprehension of how we relate to land all stems from um, from uh, our Enlightenment era uh, understanding of what nature fundamentally is. Hmm. Uh, going back for hundreds of years now, we have an understanding in what we think of as Western civilization as nature being a domain of life uh, that is non-human, that is fundamentally different than human culture or human civilization. And this uh, misapprehension of the world has has really spawned um, in a, a sense that humans are omnipotent, that we can control our environments, that we are not dependent on our more than human kin that are in fact foundational to all life as we know it. And, and, this, and this misconception um, is in my, in my mind at the root of many of our, all of our environmental problems, um, including obviously the climate crisis. So what the work of Shelterwood and Earthseed and Heron Shadow and many other Black Indigenous land stewards um, is doing is uh, reorienting a relationship with the non-human world, and and really breaking down this very artificial boundary um, that is a, a remnant of Enlightenment Cartesian thinking that uh, humans are fundamentally separate or different from the environment. Yeah, you know, Pandora. Some of these ideas, you know, have been kicking around in kind of ecological thinking you know, in the 60s and the 70s, like I'm thinking of magazines like Man Not Apart. But as you can even tell from the name of that magazine, there were some issues with how that uh, the movement dealt with uh, every other type of um, human uh, difference. So talk to me a little bit about how you see this movement as distinct from some of the, the previous iterations. Well, thank you, Alexis. And also, I'm just so tickled every time you say more than human. It's just really inspiring. And, you know, so I, my family, I grew up in Pennsylvania and my parents were sharecroppers 
that's not the beginning of our family's earth steward practices. I think we often start in the South with sharecropping, which we should change the name. There was not much sharing happening in sharecropping. There was actually a damage and a rift to the relationship that my ancestors had with our home. And then my family migrated north to Pennsylvania. And even again, even though my mother was raised, you know, having to do all the things like they lived in a, you know, like a one check room, there was like 10 of them. She took this love of the earth. She raised me with this ethic um, that plants and animals, that, that these are our kin and our community. And so there I was 50 years ago, kind of raised with that ethic but the outside world didn't really support me in going into that as a leader. I was never seen as someone that would be a scientist or an environmental lead. You know, it was like literally people were like, you could be a secretary. I said I wanted to be a veter- veterinarian. And then people were kind of like, oh, OK, that'll be hard for you. But <laughs> let's see. And even when I went searching for reflections, you know, because I was a little person to talk to trees <laughs> and insects. But there was not really a cultural support system other than from my mother mm. and actually my church and like my mm. family. So then when I did, like when I was in school and then when I went off to college, Youngstown State University, got to honor them. And I would join the environmental organizations and go to these conferences. I would get these absurd questions like, well, why don't black people care about the environment? Ooh. And mm. uh, Exactly. And this is while they're literally building a prison across the street from Youngstown State University that was projected to house more black men than would graduate from our from our college. Mm. And so I I didn't have words then because I was like a little hippie. (laughs) But slowly this voice of not only do we care about the environment, but like we're talking about, we are the environment. We are the environment working. And so our lives, our bodies, our culture, our voices, stories are just as important as the owls and recycling. And so that was my teens and early 20s. And so, like Miles pointed out, I think there is this resurgence of what's always been here because our communities have been saying these things. Um, We have rebelled against not honoring our earth in the ways we should. And so for me, what's really happening now is um, I think people are starting to, um, there's like, horrible things that happen. Like I said, George Floyd happening or the actual floods and rain, and it's starting to impact certain communities. So now we are actually starting to listen to the many communities that have been saying these things. And we're starting to understand, understand that our cities are flooding. The way we've designed them isn't working. Um, Kids are unhappy. Like what are all of these things? And so I think what we are trying to reintroduce are these age old principles and practices that are grounded in relationship Mm. and understanding where all of the things we use come from and how do we not take too much? These are not new concepts. So that's why I feel like it's really a a, a ripe opportunity, not just to quote innovate because much of what we're talking about is not even innovating. It's just listening to what Mm. has been covered over and really taken from so many cultures Mm. and so many ancestral legacies. Thank you so much for sharing about this knowledge and this history. Uh, Maya, do you think you could share with us a little bit about how indigenous knowledge comes into this work? Definitely. Yeah, I um, really appreciate what Pandora just said. And I think um, also speaking to the question you had, Alexis, of um, what's different between then and now, I think 
uh, now, like folks are starting to understand that to be a steward of the environment means to really advocate for the restoration of relationship between land and its original stewards. So not only like planting native plants, but learning from native people and really working to ensure that the indigenous people of the land um, who have lived since time immemorial in balance and reciprocity reciprocity with the land, like have access and rights to practice their traditional stewardship, um, which that stewardship really creates like a, like a home of health for everybody. <laughs> mm. And um, I think, uh, you know, as a farmer, I um, especially see the effects of colonization in our current and conventional agricultural systems, which is like all about dominion over land, like Miles was saying, mm -hmm. um, trying to control everything, you know, to the point where farms are even poisoning and sterilizing the land just so that they can dictate exactly what fertilizers or nutrients the plants are getting. But um, ind indigenous knowledge, indigenous agriculture, like our traditional ecological knowledge, that all guides the way for us. And it's, 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 is the understanding that we're just one small part of an enormous whole and so much is out of our control and we have to act with humility and respect and um, and we have a sacred responsibility and not just indigenous people, I think everyone does, but has a sacred responsibility to steward health um, in the environment for all living beings who we share life with. Um, so yeah, even yeah. like, as a farmer, even though agriculture in this country has, you know, been used as a tool of oppression and land dispossession and everything, um, for much longer than that, it's also been like a regenerative foundation of many of our indigenous cultures. And um, that's what we're all trying to return to. Thank you so much for that. Let's bring in Irene in Berkeley. Welcome, Irene. Thank you very much. I'm loving this conversation. It's really inspiring. Um, I wanted to mention, so I'm a non-Indigenous person, but I um, really care about everything you guys are talking about. And I've been involved as an artist, musician, filmmaker with um, our local Indigenous community, particularly the Ohlone um, community members and have worked with some of the women who have created Sogoreate Land Trust, mm -hmm. um, led by urban indigenous women. And I've started a practice that I want to encourage people to contribute to, which is called Shumi Tax. So I pay my property taxes to the city of Berkeley, and I have now started to pay a yearly tax to the tribe. This tribe, instead of saying re we repatriate. I can't say this. Repatriate the land. They, yeah, they say rematriate. Yeah, remake. You know about this, yes. <laughs> yeah. And you can go. You can just search Shumi, which is spelled S H U U M I, and you'll find their website. And they have even a little calculator. You can put in what your property value is, and it's a fraction yeah. of what the city, you know, taxes. And I just was looking online as I was listening to you guys. It looks like there may be voluntary land taxes all over the country. I yeah. only know about our local. 
Thank you so much, Irene. For, for people who want to look that up too, we have done some shows on that. If you search, you know, Sigorte Land Trust or Rematiation and KQED, you'll see p- plenty of resources there about that um, uh, that land tax. Um, Maya, I was wondering how you uh, kind of intersect with the the movement here, uh, or at least you know, in the East Bay around some of these issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thank you to that caller for uplifting the Sigorte Land Trust. They're doing incredible work. And I would also encourage you to just go to their um, website because they've done they've done everyone a service in, in like creating these resources for mm-hmm. how non-Indigenous people can engage and support Indigenous communities where they live. Um, so, yes, shout out to them. And then I think, um, you know, at Heron Shadow, we have the privilege of land access that many indigenous communities, especially in California, do not have. You know, we're we're made of California indigenous people who have been uh, pushed off of their land and, and then also urban intertribal native communities um, who have also been relocated a million times and dispossessed of their ancestral lands. And so um, we because we have the privilege of access to land, we understand our responsibility for um, serving those native communities and um, increasing access to healthy food and traditional seeds and um, native medicines. And so through Heron Shadow, um, we that's kind of our base from which we distribute food and save seed and um, grow and harvest medicines and materials and, and provide land access and educational resources for our urban native community. Um, so like Sigorate Land Trust, we collaborate on a food distribution program um, where healthy, locally grown, organic, and oftentimes traditional food um, that we grow at Heron Shadow is distributed to community for free. Mm. Nicola Alexander, I wanted to bring you back into this um, Shelterwood Collective. Like, how do you see its uh, mission, you know, in, in terms of intersecting with the kind of indigenous knowledge that we've been talking about as a sort of queer forestry practice? Yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful question. And we, we talk a lot at Shelterwood about how we, as Black and Indigenous people who are not from that part of, of California, that part of the world. So none of us are Kashaya. Um, but we talk about how we are stolen people on stolen lands. And so through that process, we all know that we are people who descend from folks whose, whose knowledge of land stewardship is the reason why we were actively dispossessed from the land in the first place. A lot of folks of African descent were brought to the Americas because we knew how to caretake land in ways that white colonists just did not. And the very reason why when colonists came to to Turtle Island, to what is now known as the United States, what they found was an incredibly abundant landscape in terms of biodiversity and in terms of food sources. And that abundance was a direct byproduct of over 10,000 years of intentional stewardship by the indigenous communities across the country, across Turtle Island. Uh, and so the, the the wealth of the United States was built on the backs of both of these communities of, of black folks, folks of African descent, and indigenous folks. And so what we're trying to do at Shelterwood is really model what it could what it could be like uh, to to remember our way forward. It's another expression that we use a lot uh, as a, a coalition and alliance of black and indigenous folks whose relationship to land has been severed. But we've been operating in a system that's you know 250 years old around our relationship to each other, American individualism, uh, racialized capitalism, all these isms, all these systems that 
our country is based off of, we're trying to slowly compost those things and remember how our ancestors and how the land used to uh, provide for each other and provide for one another. Again, going back to that example of indigenous folks having 10,000 years, over 10,000 years uh, worth of knowledge and experience around how to caretake for each other, how to live in community with one another and with the land. We're taking that as our guiding light moving forward and recognizing that this work of trying to heal a lot of the divides that were created through the process of colonization is going to be generational work. The process of healing the forest, the forest that's been very actively degraded through the removal of the indigenous communities who were there and through decades and decades and decades of logging, that's going to take a generation. It's going to take multiple generations. And similarly, the process of coming back together and learning how to integrate these forms of knowledge that were broken in many instances, in many instances were lost, but not totally, they haven't totally disappeared. Uh, it's, it's going to take time. And so we're doing that by listening very deeply to the land, by listening very deeply to the Kashaya elders who we were very blessed to be in relationship with, and by coming together with all of the, the kin who are on this call to learn what, what our ancestors can share and to come up with a creative way of, of moving forward. And that's why, where our queerness really comes into play. We, um, and I'm, I use the word play very intentionally there. This is, this is serious work. This is deep work. This is hurtful work. Uh, and it's also playful work. There's no, there's no point in trying to solve the, all the, the social and ecological crises that we're collectively wrestling with without play, without joy, without mirth, without creativity. And so for us, we really would like to, to honor our indigenous ancestors, our queer, uh, excuse me, our black ancestors, and also our, our queer ancestors, the queerness that allows us to come up with pathways that perhaps were not seen before because they rely so beautifully and so deeply on creativity and on play. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I got to get up to Shelterwood. I mean, that's, that sounds amazing. Yes, you do. Please uh, do. <laughs> we're talking about the movement of black, queer, and indigenous farmers who are stewarding land in Northern California. We're joined by Nicola Alexander, co-founder and stewardship lead at Shelterwood Collective. Pandora Thomas, the Afro-Indigenous founder and land steward of the Earth Seed Farm in Sebastopol. Maya Harjo, farmer at Heron Shadow, Farm for Indigenous Refuge, which is operated by the Cultural Conservancy, a native-led organization. And Miles Lennon, an environmental anthropologist and professor of environment and society and anthropology at Brown. We would love to hear from you. I mean, what are your questions about this land stewardship movement and the decolonization of nature? Do you feel welcomed and represented in outdoor spaces or the environmental community? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. This incredible panel was put together by Finn Doze, a junior at Marin Academy who joins me here in the studio. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, joined by Marin Academy Junior Finn Doe's here in the studio. We've got a panel that he's put together as part of KQED's Youth Takeover Week. We're talking about this incredible movement of black, queer, and indigenous farmers who are stewarding land in Northern California. All were able to acquire these properties during the pandemic and just the kind of remarkable work that they're they're doing. We have Nicola Alexander, co-founder and stewardship lead at the Shelterwood Collective in Sonoma County. We've got Miles Lennon, environmental anthropologist at Brown. We've got Maya Harjo, farmer at Heron Shadow, and Pandora Thomas, uh, Afro-Indigenous founder and land steward at the Earthseed Farm. Want to take us away, Finn? Yeah. So, like Nicola was saying... Um Miles, I was wondering if you could share with us about how the histories and legacies of issues such as segregation, redlining, and land access impact uh, BIPOC communities' ability to form relationships with the land. Yeah, that, that's a really great question. You know, so many of the challenges that uh, Nico was speaking to are the product of very intentional um, uh, policies, space, urban development policies. Um, uh, and housing policies enacted over centuries, but in particular in the 20th century, that really severed uh, the relationship of Black and people of color um, uh, with the land. And specifically, uh, redlining policies developed in the 1930s and 40s specifically um, uh, prohibited Black people from owning property in uh, key areas where there was um, investment uh, in urban development and suburban development. And the creation of the suburbs, as we know it, was uh, one of institutionalized codified racism mm -hmm. um, that uh, and, and we see the, the, the similar kinds of legacies in uh, uh, housing policies all over this country, um, uh, the the great migration uh, after the Civil War, and um, and just uh, very generally speaking, and there's there's just there's a, a lot of specificity that we could get into, but um, but I'll just say you know at, at this moment, um, communities of color, Black people, Indigenous people have uh, have lived or live in areas where uh, there is a massive disinvestment in infrastructure, in quality housing, in open space. Um, and as a result, we don't have the same relationships that we've had with land. Um, we don't have many people in our communities don't have the robust ancestral knowledge that for centuries and millennia were passed down um, uh, in other parts of our, our diasporic histories. And so the work, the work that um, that Shelterwood, that uh, Heron Shadow, that Earthseed and many other uh, in Black Indigenous Land Stewardship Collectives are doing today are are really face uh, this this very challenging uphill battle of undoing and redressing centuries of spatialized discrimination and the very systemic codified removal of our communities from um, from non-human forms of life from uh, ecosystems where we had once thrived uh, with um, and instead uh, have lived uh, yeah. yeah I'll just leave it at that yeah and what we euphemize sometimes as environmental justice communities yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Pandora, given that legacy, what kind of healing does being on the Earthseed land bring to you? Thank you, Finn, for that great question. And for Miles, as always, breaking it down. Um, so right now I'm sitting outside. I'm looking at a row of redwood trees. 
Amariposa trees, Asian pears, applekin, and we have these gatherings called Black to the Land. We're literally, and it don't all just be Black people too. We do ask that a Black person brings you because we know our communities are robust and diverse. And we, I have to tell people there is no curriculum. There's no agenda other than come and be prepared to sit and relax under a tree. <laughs> and that, I know, and that might sound, but like, again, when we have a legacy of literally being hung from trees and it's resurfacing this energy to be able to be on land that has been honored. The Great Rancheria community said, we, we, we give you permission, Pandora, we're honored. And so to be able to come and not have to be doing a million things and not have to be plotting mm. the next, you know, how are we going for that? So we try to create space so that folks can just come and be together, beautiful, cry, swim, eat, laugh. And here's the other thing, eating organic, healthy food grown mm. here. Mm -hmm. So people come for our you picks. We have a you pick. And at first it was like, oh, we're going to have to figure out all the programming. Picking fruit apparently is very, like, people love it. <laughs> and people come and they're like, kids are like, that's where lemons come from. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize that that's the tree that must come from. from. So we're in this moment of kind of not over-programming and just allowing this space to welcome home. So all of our language is like, welcome home to Earthseed. Because mm -hmm. the soil is just ripe and ready for folks to sit on it. We're, we dance in the trees. And so that's a large portion of what we do on top of farming. Like we actually also steward the land, grow. We have 4,000 trees and um, we we grow that, we sell it in wholesale, but we also donate it and just try to feed our community something that is not going to kill us. Can you talk to me a little bit about the name of your farm as well? I mean, I know we're both fans of Octavia Butler and maybe just <laughs> just how you chose that name, like why that specific reference thank you alexis so in honor of our ancestor octavia butler the name actually chose me mm. i read parable of the sower 20 years ago in grad school and when i read the book as harrowing and crazy i was like i'm not sure how but there's something about this in my future mm. and the fact that we're off the 101 so I think also because of the last few years that we went through, so many people say that Octavia kind of foretold this. She's an ancestor now. Um, we we chose this name so that it's honoring her, but also what does it look like if we don't have to become <laughs> what happens in Parable of the Sower, but listen to and reconnect. So it's an honoring of Octavia and we have a, a mural here of her, but also we're going to celebrate her birthday and try to restore and rekindle and learn. Mm -hmm. Because if we are uh, what we say are these, these extensions of the earth, I think Octavia foretold us, she told us these stories to try to shake us up and be like, do y'all want what I'm putting in my books <laughs> to happen? What are you going to do about it? So we we're not like the church of Octavia. I heard there's that, but we're more like the honorable kin of Octavia trying to listen and learn and do better, but in fun and inspiring ways. Mm. So that's what will happen if you come to Earthseed. You're going to see Octavia mirror, you're going to eat some fruit, and you're just going to be able to relax and get some sun and, and ground. Mm. Pandora, that sounds amazing. I'd like to, <laughs> to come up there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting, Finn, for you. I'm waiting. <laughs> um, Nico, how do you personally nurture your relationship to the land? Mm, what a beautiful question. Um, 
I mean, that shout out to Pandora. So much of, of what she is holding down, we're trying to learn from and, and implement up at Shelterwood as well. Just uh, um, spending time in a place that you know you are not going to um, face any kind of violence against your body or against the, your, your form of gender expression is a key piece of, of how Shelterwood moves and how I move personally up through the forest. And so we are. It's a 900-acre forest. It was a former uh, summer youth camp that was operated by a church. There's about 20 buildings right at the center of the build of the uh, the forest, um, surrounding that uh, the, the the retreat center. We called our our village. Our two beautiful creeks that kind of hug mm-hmm. the village, and above those two creeks are two ridge lines. And so there really is just we call it our our big gay island in the middle of the woods. There <laughs> is this ridge line that just hugs the land itself. And so the the we're talking about names. The name Shelterwood. Uh, chose us and the land heard that that was a name that we wanted to 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 move forward with and manifested. And what is Shelterwood? Yeah, well, so it, it is very literal, shelter, wood, the woods that shelter all of us and find spaces for us to heal and learn. But it's also a technical for stewardship term that uh, is used to restore degraded landscapes. And so it's a process of nurturing a new generation of trees by uh, allowing the older generation to care for it, to loom over it, to provide it with water, nutrients, shade, as the younger generation comes up. And that is the aspiration for Shelterwood. We had uh, a community visioning session a couple, I guess about a year ago, when we first became the caretakers of this space. We had 150 folks come up and share how Shelterwood could be a sanctuary space for them. And within, you know, within 10 minutes of folks arriving, uh, half, half the group was in tears. Because they had never felt safe outdoors. These spaces were never built for them to just, as Pandora was saying, to just be, to breathe, to relax. Uh, and for me, that is a huge piece of how I how I caretake myself. You know, I'm a I'm a forest nymph. I love being with the trees. I love caretaking land. And so much of this requires community to be present. Uh, it can't just be individuals going out. It can't just be the nuclear family model of caretaking land. It can't just be the lonely forester every five years walking around lo- looking at a forest. It really does take a village to care for each other and care for the land. And so when I see our community being able to dance, being able to laugh, finding joy, working through a lot of the traumas that they've held in space that is safe underneath some of the trees that we're caretaking, that for me is how I care for myself and for my people. Nico, thank you so much for sharing that beautiful response. Um, Maya, uh, you and I have spoken about repression of self in the context of forming relationships with the land. Could you speak a little bit about what this means and what the issue stems from? It's, um, such a big question, but one that I'm sitting with every day, um, as I try to, you know, unlearn the lessons of, um, colonialism and heteronormative, uh, heteronormative society and all of the ways in which that I've like repressed my authentic self and all of the ways in which reconnecting with the land and seeing myself in the land, all sides of myself in the land, um, helps me feel, you know, alive and grounded and connected to a larger collective that is also experiencing, you know, joy and growth. (laughs) Um, I think that a lot of that repression, you know, comes from the toxic individualism of colonialism, um, where everyone is just uh, thinking about themselves. And ultimately, when you think about yourself as just an individual disconnected from everything else, um, you're really, you're, 
repressing your true identity. And so um, when you, yeah, I think when you reconnect with, um, when you reconnect with, uh, as Indigenous people, when we, when we reconnect with our land-based cultures and we reconnect to the lessons that our elders and knowledge keepers teach us, um, which is that, you know, like healing as humans is, is deeply interconnected to the healing of the earth. Um, then we start to restore that like physical and spiritual and cultural and, and just like comprehensive health to ourselves and to our, to our full identities. Um, and that, yeah, that can't happen. Uh, we can't, we can't feel truly ourselves. We can't feel truly, you know, connected and grounded and rooted unless we're, we're rooted into, um, our reciprocal relationship with the land. Yeah. At least that's, that's what I've been experiencing <laughs> on our farm, yeah. um, for the past so many years. Miles Lennon, you know, one aspect of your work as an anthropologist that's so interesting is that you're trying to integrate these kind of like healing land practices with the kind of climate transition that we know must happen, like all the solar and aspects of changing these huge infrastructural systems. How do you see the relationship between the kind of land practices and healing and then that kind of infrastructure, the, the kind of like steel part of it? Yeah, that's a great question. I really appreciate it. You know, I I did energy and climate policy for many years before becoming an anthropologist, um, always looking for uh, better, more inclusive, more just ways to transition our energy system. And as I look deeper into our energy system, our renewable energy system, I realized that uh, the the most popular approaches we have to decarbonizing our economy um, are centered uh, very narrowly on infrastructural transition, on building uh, solar farms and wind farms and transitioning from fossil fuels to another very intensive form of, of energy production and energy generation just through renewable energy. And I found that these renewable energy infrastructures, while, while uh, vastly better than fossil fuels, vastly, 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 are still dependent upon forms of land exploitation and extraction, labor exploitation and extraction, and, uh, a ra- and, and racial injustices um, such that environmental justice communities, poor communities, indigenous communities, black communities um, are, are, uh, are often um, exploited and extracted from in the production of a renewable energy economy. And it struck me that the, our transition cannot just focus solely on, uh, on big infrastructure and new technology. We also have to transform our relationship to the forms of life that we depend on uh, to live. Energy is not simply uh, the electricity that we produce when we turn on a, a light switch. It's, it's imminent in all forms of life. It, it, and um, Black and Indigenous land stewardship practices historically recognize that uh, uh, ecological wellness and resilience must entail having a deep relationship, embodied relationship with the land, mm. and, um, and that uh, our survival can't only hinge on big modern infrastructure producing energy that we have no deep relationship with. Mm. So I see the, the, the work of, of uh, Black Indigenous land stewardship part being essential to a just transition and to a climate resilient future where we um, are actually in relationship with the forms of life that we depend upon to live and that we are using less and consuming less and extracting less by virtue of those relations. Real quick, I want to get to a caller, David in Sonoma County. 
talk to us a little bit, and, and we'll try and get you some answers. Hi. Um, I'm so glad to hear this, this story. I've never really called in for any, <laughs> anything <laughs> before, but um, I, I grew up in Sonoma County. I grew up in that unincorporated area that my parents and other brown and black folks um, were forced to basically live in. And um, we grew up close to the land, and um, as time went on, like, it be, you know, like, we all left, basically, mm-hmm. and also because everything got bought out. So um, I'm, I'm just happy to hear about it. I wanted to know how to get involved. Get involved I, yeah, yeah I, I moved away and actually learned to really love to garden, and I came back here, and, um, and I have some property as well. Um, but I, I, I would just love to know more about what's, what's going on and perhaps spread it around. I'm sure many folks, I have a huge family and many other African-American and indigenous folks just don't know about these, um, these wonderful places. And so, yeah, thank you so much, David. Thank you for calling in. Call back anytime. Um, Nicola, um, what's the best way to get in touch with, with Shelterwood? Mm, beautiful question. Uh, yeah, there's so many wonderful ways. So you can find us on Instagram at Shelterwood underscore Collective. We also have a website where you can sign up for our newsletter and for our work party events. We have beautiful gatherings of folks coming up doing actual work while listening to Beyonce. Uh, great times. Um, and then just also reaching out, info at shelterwoodcollective.org. We love to welcome folks up on the land and love to talk about how we can mutually support each other to do work beyond the forest edge because we're not just trying to heal the world within the forest edge. We're really trying to think about nurturing societal shifts far beyond that. So great. Um, you all have been amazing. We have been talking about the movement of black, queer, and indigenous farmers who are stewarding land in Northern California. We've been joined by Nicola Alexander, co-founder and stewardship lead at Shelterwood Collective. So beautiful. Pandora Thomas, Afro-Indigenous founder and land steward at Earthseed Farm. Thank you so much. Maya Harjo, farmer at Heron Shadow Farm, which is run by a Native American collective. Thank you. And Miles Lennon, environmental anthropologist at Brown University and a board secretary at the Shelterwood Collective. This show was produced by Finn Doe's amazing work, Finn, junior at Marin Academy. It's the final day of KQED's Youth Takeover Week, and it's been an amazing week of shows. Thank you so much, Finn. Thanks, Alexis. And thank you so much to all of our guests, callers, commenters. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.